Hi, welcome to Deep Americana. I am your host for season four. My name is Wes Unruh. And season four is Unrelated Thoughts on Being an Unruly Adoptee. My story. If you listened to episode one and you're joining me, um, I feel blessed and I hope you're happy with what you've heard. I hope that what I continue to bring to you is going to be of value and that I'm not simply um, spending time <laughs> assuaging my own egos. Um, so, again, my name is Wes Hunter. Uh, I was born with the last name Harper, uh, but that was changed by a court in the state of Idaho. Um, and I am an adoptee, what's called a private adoption from the state of Idaho from 1974, uh, which is right at the edge of what you would call the baby scoop era. Um, it's before certain oversights came into play um, in the adoption industry. Um, anyway, <clears throat> so I am writing this book as a feminist. Um, I use that word intentionally. I use that word hopefully as intersectionally as possible as a white presenting cis male. Um, I grew up in an evangelical or Baptist Christian circus of highly charged opinions regarding the word feminist, and much of that swirled around the topic of abortion. Uh, around the topic of abortion, I, as an adoptee, was a poster child against abortion within that community. At least I certainly was as abortion became treated increasingly like the most terrible thing that could have been done to me and then uh, to others like me, right? Uh, that could have ended my life before it began. And so the Christians I knew growing up always made it clear to me that abortion or death before life was my alternative as though my life were zero sum and the only two possible options were being aborted before I could have known or given to my adoptive parents, you know, to relieve my birth mother of that sin. Um, okay, so, but of course, abortion never really been on the table. My mother's choice, and I use that word deliberately here, was to keep me, and that choice, uh, just like the women who choose abortion, was denied her. So we're talking about <laughs> um, why people would use adoption as an anti-abortion argument, it falls apart when I look closely at my own story. Um, anyway, evangelicals that I've known have always posed the question of abortion to me within this framework. So how can I possibly believe in abortion? And it's the way the words are used. Um, believing in abortion as a good or is a stand-in for assuming that abortion is a necessary institutional practice. And I do think that it is a necessary institutional practice, sometimes medically necessary, um, but oftentimes a decision that somebody is making because of bodily autonomy. Uh, so well, their assumption is that I wouldn't even exist if abortion were possible to my birth mother. But... It wasn't my birth mother who didn't want me. So, again, don't drag me personally, nor um, adoptees in general, into the argument about abortion. So, 
The events in my life that have led me to this point make all of those moments for which I had no control over uh, seem to turn my existence into a question of just pure chance. I think it illustrates that all of us are essentially awash in chaos. It's just that the adoptee is constantly questioning or you know, self-reflecting, right? Adoption is not a simple solution to a social problem. Um, adoptees, as opposed to the kept, are compartmentalized by those around us. Compartmentalized by the legal status of our identity washing, we're compartmentalized by religious and cultural traditions, and we are internally compartmentalizing, or in many ways we are taught unintentionally to mask our differences, to mimic, to mock, I use the phrase as if a lot, to maintain and participate as if we are identical to biological offspring. Um, so we become these commodities that aren't meant to be noticed except as an act of charity or civic obligation or perhaps penance. Um, or, you know, I, I, again, I'm, I'm essentializing in some ways here, but adopting is a transactional situation. It's designed to provide a couple, preferably married and authorized in some way, um, the adoptee. The adoptee is presented to the couple, whether they pay for it or, as in my case, legal documents are drawn up. I still do not know how much money was expended to purchase me. I've never seen the receipts, but there's certainly a transactional nature to this. And in other cases, there are adoptees who have seen their own receipts. Uh, they have seen the emails, if you will, right? In this day and age, um, we'd call them oh, letters or, uh, yeah, I'm babbling here. But again, I disassociate a lot, uh, which I went over in the previous episode, the first episode of this. So bear with me. An adoptee might have been rescued from a tra traumatic situation or a trauma-filled life of poverty or an inept mother in the narrative that the adopters tend to present to the adoptee if they're informing that adoptee that they are adopted as a young child, right? So um, the adoptee's life in the abortion-adoption debate is always, well, if it weren't for adoption, you would be non-existent. Um, so just be grateful you exist is kind of the subtext of that. When you reverse it, when you look at it from the listener's point of view, right? So um, this idea that you're rescued from trauma <laughs> and then not acknowledging that you might be traumatized in some ways is, is also complicated. <sighs> um, anyway, we'll unpack that in a minute. In this narrative, though, where that is being presented to the adoptee, the adoptee being salvaged from a otherwise unexceptional life, um, their living is valued primarily for their obedience and gratitude um, within that kind of a framework, right? If you're rescued, then you want to be, you should be grateful that you were rescued. And if you don't understand that you were rescued, maybe you need to be re-educated, which is kind of what you'll see happens when um, adolescent adoptees are put in behavioral um, wards for what's called reactive. Um, uh, anyway, uh, was it 
I, I am not a psychologist, I'm a poet. So first and foremost, I probably shouldn't try to define terms. I'll just explain that. The way that I see it, um, I as a living being, I'm being valued for my gratitude and obedience as a child, and I'm a stand-in replacement for their lost fetus or an infertile relationship. So the adoptee becomes an emblem or a passion project to stand in for a biological child that never came or died in the womb or passed too soon or in some cases that the couple goes on to have after adoption uh, takes place and you have an older adoptee and a biological um, sibling in that family. So these are complicated and not necessarily um, easy to um, disentangle from the moment. These are complicated issues that, that arise within, within multiple lives, right? So please know that to understand why oneself is adopted is likely never enough for any adoptee. Um, the reason why one was put up for adoption and how that came about that is the nugget around which my internal psychic landscape accreted. So when I came out of the fogs, uh, I came out of fear, obligation, guilt, and shame around who I was, right? Which is to say, I started deeply questioning the value and intention of my adoption. I found myself in opposition on nearly every political and religious perspective imposed by my adoptive parents. Um, so you have to ask yourself, in retrospect, how much of that is me reacting just to everything, um, like in total rejection of the entire frame, and how much of that is me sort of criti critically or cynically seeing through the illusions. Uh, I think about The Truman Show, which I mentioned in the first episode of this podcast, um, which I deal with in first chapter of this book that I may or may not write, and of course this episode you may or may not hear, as I do not know if I will make any of this public. Um, so, but getting it out of my head is probably the only way for me to ever move forward on it, right? Um, being an adoptee means that you are always dealing with that internal psychic landscape that is not filled with tales of your ancestors, but with mystery, right? Vagaries, shadows. And... <sighs> if anything, I have learned about my ancestors in the years before <laughs> finding my biological relatives, it's that they have never been that talkative, or maybe I'm just not listening in the right ways, right? But after I have figured out these pieces in my search, um, I can construct a narrative of my ancestors that at least begins to approximate what my DNA research has shown. So that's given me a little bit of an internal psychic landscape that isn't just pure supposition or whatever uh, accretes over time that I overhear or that I internalize based on how I understand those around me see my place in the world and how I am labeled within that world. 
the lives of the kept, right? Those peers who aren't adopted as opposed to those who I've known who are adopted in my life were so clearly divergent that I became convinced that there was a traumatic core to the adoptee experience that was shared by all of the adoptees I've met and known. And um, again, coming out of the fog has become a conversational term amongst adoptee communities online that have formed as a kind of touchstone for how adoptees self-individuate. Should they survive these dark emotional turmoil years that come with these transitional moments of self-awareness, right? So there are millions of adoptees in circulation in the United States, around the the globe, really. Um, But in the United States is where I've grown up. It's where I've met a lot of adoptees. It's where I kind of started my consciousness. And as I'm starting to understand a global um, situational space that adoption takes up uh, and, and seeing how adoption is being processed in Canada and Ireland and Australia, particularly Australia right now. Um, it fascinates me that the adoption activist movement hasn't coalesced as clearly in the United States as it has in Australia. I think it's because there's still so much family shame um, around the notion of adoption itself culturally, but it, there's something else too, and I think it has to do with the way the states themselves sort of diffuse political action. Yeah, also all of the states um, have their own laws regarding adoption. So the state of Idaho's law applies to me because that's when I was adopted and where I was adopted, despite I live in Georgia, which has a different laws that would apply to an adoption were it to happen to me here or if I were to adopt someone here as opposed to another state. Um, the fact that there's no sort of federal um, cohesiveness to adoption law is only one of the larger problems because it's obviously a federal issue um, with transracial or transnational adoptions, um, which are often transracial in makeup and which can have or have historically had uh, very negative impacts on adoptees um, when their parents, their new parents here in the United States, don't properly fill out the paperwork to make sure that they're considered citizens. Um, So politically, that's probably the most important thing I think in the United States as far as the adoption community goes is that there is a a general understanding that there needs to be a cohesiveness to the adoption law in the United States and that adoptees shouldn't be deported once they become of age. Uh, If you got brought here by people who paid for you, at the very least, you should be given citizenship retroactively. Um, and there are still people who do not have that citizenship despite being adopted as children by citizens of the United States. Speaking of that, though, nearly all of the adoptees in the United States live with their biological histories erased and sealed away by the states in which they were adopted, at least during their formative adolescent and teenage years. There are a number of states where you can get your information once you're an adult, but it is far fewer than you would expect. And the laws are only 
starting to come into play in some states even now. So as I've been writing this book and I've been working on this podcast and I've been watching the community online grow and react to laws that have been advanced and established, um, you know, they've made it easier for adoptees in New York State and elsewhere to get their birth certificates, but the change is slow in coming and often comes with caveats. As a child, it was expected that I would never know who my parents had been, and I should be grateful that I was special, chosen by God, to live with these two people and their two dogs, and eventually four dogs in particular, and then they would go on to adopt those two dogs, um, and then another human being, my sister, uh, over the next seven years there in Twin Falls, Idaho, uh, from 1974 um, on. So I, I do believe it in, uh, as you can tell, in a woman's right to her own body when it comes to childbirth, but also those rights come with a complicated addendum. A woman should have the right to choose to keep her baby and not be pressured to give that baby to someone else. Uh, this seems logical from the outside, but in reality, it is kind of um, an almost the obverse of how uh, the adoption industry uses morality um, pressure in uh, pregnancy crisis centers. Um, you know, legislation has long protected the rights of the prospective adoptive parents over the birth parents. That's often because you're trying to protect the consumer, right? The laws were created by an adoption industry to protect the adoption industry practices. So I believe in a woman's right to choose, and that choice extends to getting to keep her baby. Because when adoption is an industry, and it is, uh, indeed, an industry rather than a charitable function, um, that is that is uh, going to position it. As I make this podcast, I am constantly being assaulted by my cats, but I hope that doesn't detract from my point, which is <laughs> when an adoption is an industry, rather than a charitable function of society, then it is always in the business of creating inventory. And without inventory, there is no business. So, well, many of the adoption agencies in the United States and globally consider themselves to be charities for the purpose of taxation. In reality, they are organizations that profit off the business of selling babies to families that need babies. As long as this remains a middle-class desire, will probably be funded by tax credits. Um, and as long as parents continue to feel that this degree of entitlement towards parenthood is part of their narrative of, of the middle class lifestyle that they expect, this will continue to drive the adoption industry. And then there's this added underlying notion of the quiverful communities and evangelical communities who seek to convert through adoption, so they adopt as young as they can, they adopt from overseas, and they do it as a kind of evangelical ministry to spread their religious beliefs. Uh, at that point, you have to ask yourself, do they see these people as individuals, or are they, you know, just like jewels in a crown that they're racking up and they're after they get to heaven, right? So... 
So it doesn't always sit well with me. Throughout this industry's history, there are examples of stunningly horrific actors. Uh, George Tan comes to mind immediately, but there are cases of adoptee rehoming, you know, stories that add to the legacy of human trafficking and eugenics, a legacy all too often overlooked when we as a public are discussing the institution of adoption. Um, and so to this end, we can think of the backing of pro-life legislation with the business interests underlying adoption. Uh, so the idea seems to be something like fewer abortions equal more adoptive babies, and those babies are worth money. And as an added bonus, adoption agencies that are founded in a religious set of beliefs can specifically ensure bringing those children in as future followers. In other words, there is a tacit assumption that a baby adopted via a religious charity will remain indebted to that religion for life. It's, um, it's the addiction model, whether that's Catholic charities or evangelical community or the Mormon church. This, of course, is a pretty cynical view of the adoption practices in the United States and elsewhere. It is probably certainly not a complete view. Um, but would-be parents of adoptees might be hesitant to think of adoption in these crass terms, right? He, this, isn't, this is a human trafficking operation at scale that operates internationally, um, tax-free uh, within religious organizations under the guise, in many cases, probably intentionally not that misleading under the attempt of bringing people in, um, you know, through an ideological framework that makes them feel okay with the purchase of a human being. You know, like we, we, we've taken all of everything out of the equation except for that last little bit at the end where you have to give money to somebody to get a real live human person. Right. So that money doesn't always go directly to a guy. You don't hand a check to a guy and he hands you a baby. That's how it used to be in the United States in some places. Um, I'm not positive that that's how it was in my case, but it sure, sure seems like it could have been. But anyway, part of the argument of my podcast, of this episode, of the stuff I'm writing, all of this isn't just to call this out and say this is wrong. I, I don't want to be the person saying there's a problem. Um, I do want to say that we can do better. My argument is that we can do better than these practices. Um, there are purposes and values to the practices uh, <laughs> of adoption and how they are performed. So giving, giving a perspective on adoption, giving my unique, I suspect in some ways, feminist perspective on adoption is about supporting better practices when it comes to how we think about adoption, both nationally and globally. Because adoptiveness is an internal experience which, which often finds expression, subconscious or otherwise. And in tackling this, I have three thoughts that I want to bring forward that I think I find pressing in the minds of the adoptees that I've talked with personally and that I want to reflect throughout this entire 
um, process, uh, a podcast, whatever I write out of it, whether that's articles or a full book, hopefully, maybe, um, however much this makes it out of the public, the poetry and the art, the visual work that I might do around this. It's all about adoptee identity. As an adoptee, one's identity is somewhat fluid. It's destabilized by the act of adoption at the very beginning, right? And the idea of one's identity being stolen digitally is pressingly real in today's day and age. So just getting online, using using uh, an interface that requires my identity makes me feel like my identity could be uh, degraded digitally somehow. The idea that someone could begin impersonating me seems all too likely as I feel like I'm always already impersonating myself. Uh, many adoptees are caught within this slippage of identity. They're balancing a private real self against a false projected self, always in performance. And the exhaustion of this performance leads many adoptees into suicidal and self-destructive patterns of behavior. So second, that identity is always enmeshed in trauma. I don't mean it's rooted in trauma, but it's certainly entangled with. As an adoptee, traveling can be a traumatizing experience for myself. Uh, in particular, traveling internally in this country creates moments where a sensation of being unmade as a person for state inspection, um, uh, I think, hailed by state actors, right? Like or somebody in a uniform but passing through security. That scrutiny causes a crisis of self that I don't believe the kept experience. I don't. I think that it's something that is different from racial trauma. It's identity trauma. Um, it is not more or less um, important to the psyche of an individual, but I think that identity trauma is something that isn't felt by most individuals who are kept, uh, by which I mean not adopted. Adoptees do feel identity trauma. And I think there are probably other ways that you can acquire identity trauma, but I, I pity those who have found that path. There are increasing numbers of adult adoptees being deported to where they were born despite often having no ties to those countries, and in many cases being unable to speak the language. Well, that sounds like madness. Uh, <laughs> when I was writing this before President Trump, um, it certainly become a starker reality during the Trump years uh, to begin life feeling out of place and then be abandoned by one's entire country is a cruel and shockingly unusual punishment for the crime of being an adoptee. Adoption is a social institution, and as such, uh, the society that practices it has an obligation to those it adopts, or it is treating them as cattle, as chattel, as um, product and prod. And you have to ask yourself, is society trying to... Um, <laughs> It, to what end are people being adopted in a society if the um, if society is then going to as uh, you know deport them or criminalize them for their uh, performance of trauma triggers? 
So adoption is a social institution and it has a felt and observable presence, but it succeeds by its own admission when it slips past unnoted. In other words, to be hailed as adopted is to be called out, right? If you uh, don't fit in to the family well enough, then it's obvious that you're adopted. And this is something that becomes um, even more extreme um, a situation when you find places where uh, someone who is in a family where maybe they, their race, it doesn't match that of their parents and they're out in public and then they're uh, criminalized in front of those parents. Or um, they have experiences that are tied to um, cultural and racial understandings that their parents, adoptive parents, are unable to map to um, and can't help them nav- navigate. Yeah, you know, this is this is tough, right? And so this is these are some of the issues that I really want to deal with. Um, I felt this to a lesser extent. I've seen people around me deal with it greater to greater extents. But um, in, in all of these cases, when you get called out as being adopted, you're getting called out as somehow not a full citizen. You don't have the exact same rights as the rest of the citizenry. And when you're called out as being an adoptee, and it happens uh, to the adopted, probably much more often than the kept would suspect, um, is to feel for for a second, you know, inferior, less than, counterfeit, uh, a cuckoo, right, dropped in somebody else's nest. Uh, An adoptee is seen as salvage, as reclamation as a charity case, absolving the adopters of some other social obligations. Film that calls out adoption as a practice or illustrates aspects of the adoptee experience are powerful tools in the right context for helping the non-adopted understand what this kind of life and self-awareness is like. The weight of it, the way it colors all aspects of one's identity and expression of self. I keep touchstoning, right, the, uh, the Truman Show as I work through this, but that's hardly the only one. When I was working on this book, I watched um, a really old film called Bachelor Mother that just is amazing. It's like one of the the most bizarre pieces of, uh, it's supposed to be a comedy. I don't know exactly what's happening. it's supposed to be a screwball comedy where a woman finds a baby and is mistaken for her mother and ends up like taking care of her and there's this big huge confusion and somehow lands the perfect husband and creates a perfect family but the baby came out of nowhere because some poor biological mother had to give it up to a, a orphanage um all of it is clearly like early hollywood propaganda for the adoption uh, industry. So I guess I'm not saying that all film is good for adoptees, but I, I am saying that in a, maybe a conversation about uh, how we can represent adoptive voices in media and create paths of empathy so that the kept can understand the adoptee and can understand identity trauma as trauma. So. 
like I said, at the beginning of all of this. At the beginning of this episode, I explained that adoptees are provided, be it by the state or through some agency, to fulfill a need seen within a family, to solve a puzzle that is posed by society. A puzzle that the state itself reinforces. I cannot speak for all adoptees, I can only speak for myself, but I find the static, complete nature of film a powerful counterpoint to a world that feels slippery and without a center. The world I know is one that lacks a cohesive narrative. My personal life now has a center, but for years I felt unmoored. My identity negotiable, my presence arbitrary. When I first thought about writing uh, down this whole story of my life, I constantly found myself confronting the question of reaching the kept, the non-adoptees. So how do I cut through the veils that are not easily articulated, let alone defined, which separates adoptees from the rest of the world? Or more precisely, how do I articulate the adoptee experience in a way that non-adoptees can understand and experience a sense of compassion share humanity and ideally empathy. So film, even at its worst, like Bachelor Mother, presents individuals on screen as having purpose, driving plot forward, providing motive, inspiring desire, or catalyzing potential. Film fulfills this central lack within me, if you will. Um, Film provides a complete narrative. It also means that when I am not engaged with a film and I'm not engaged with the narrative, then I sort of feel unmoored, right? So um, it's always kind of a back and forth between myself and narratives to keep a sense of a central self. So film and story fulfill some central lack within me and stories fill me with an awareness. and empathy with fellow human beings that I do not get from family connections. I write about film, and I'm going to speak about it in this podcast as we go forward because of the intimacy of the vision. I can go back to it. The film is static. It is known. It has limited frames, limited and finite dialogue. The conversations and relationships can be mapped if you want. Um, Film is the conscience and confessional of a society at a given time and place. So as much as my distaste for Bachelor Mother sticks in my craw as I think back about film, it also gave me insight into a cultural understanding that gave rise to that film in that moment. And then the box office response of the film, which was meager, I mean, wasn't. So film provides a lens, a collective dream of an intentional community. So no matter how improbable or underfunded the production may have been, a community did make it. It was a result or product of a community. Sometimes that's a small community. Sometimes it's what might have passed for a family-sized community. But using film to reflect on an institution, adoption, which thrives due to its secretive nature, is kind of to map out the forces of a black hole by its gravitational pull, if you will or what elusive energy may escape its dense center. So, I think a lot about that, right? Um, Let me put it this way. A film becomes a reference point against a world of experiential chaos. I can't predict what you as a listener may have experienced, 
But I know that if you were to watch AI, artificial intelligence, 2001, the Kubrick-Spielberg joint, for example, you would perceive the same set of narrative instances as I. And that provides a foundation for discussing the internal and dynamic aspects of cognition in relation to that film and the resulting and underlying themes of the film, right? I, can, I can't presuppose that you and I can talk because I don't know you and you and I are going to have an asynchronous experience. But if I can tell you, hey, if you have seen this film, AI, artificial intelligence, 2001, Spielberg Kubrick, if you've seen that and you and I then have an understanding of framework, then when I talk about it in the future, I know that that is the one touchstone, the one fabric of reality that can transmit the other pieces. It becomes the pretext for uh, transmission of this idea. So. What all the films have in common is that they moved me specifically. Um, they moved the adoptee or recovery me. They resonated with the chord within that harmonizes with other adoptees and recognizes that experience or at least that awareness of that experience. So, a lot, I know, I'm a poet. Sometimes I drive people crazy. It's 40 minutes. 35 minutes into this recording at this point, episode two, and I'm deeply mapping all of this in a way that might be confusing at first glance. Let me back up and explain. A surprising number of these films that I'm going to be talking about as I go forward deal with the world-breaking nature of the adoptee. I explore this notion of upturning the social order in depth when I go talk about the Ten Commandments that came out in 1956, not the first Ten Commandments, which is also its own big ball of weirdness and kind of um, set the stage for the Ten Commandments that came out in 1956, but the power to destroy the world that the adoptee knows is a reoccurrent trope. I mean, it's it shows up in the Truman Show that I mentioned. As I'm recording this, I'm watching Loki, not in the moment, but I'm watching Loki play out um, season one on Disney+. Plus. Uh, and so I'm halfway through that, and the world-ending trope of the adoptee is uh, recurrent throughout uh, every episode of that, um, of that show in a way that um, Legion on FX uh, came close to exploring as well. So that's one way to get there. But what I'm finding now is that in this world, film and television have all blended into one thing. So the narrative of The Omen, like the 1976 film, or the narrative of Flirting with Disaster, 1996, um, yeah, they're even sort of, even Loki in Thor in 2011, um, all of these world-breaking individuals, these uh, characters that come in and disrupt their lives, their families, they, they end uh, the social order, they turn everything into a farce, um, or they turn tragedy in, into comedy in some cases, but um, often they turn things into farce. So if that's what the adoptee is, certainly the male adoptee, is showing up um, throughout filmic lore. Um, 
as world breakers, what are we? Uh, Moses and Damien, both are adoptees, both are in their own way, bringers of apocalypses, right? So I think a lot about that. Well, what does that do? So getting beyond the notion of the religious and thinking about it culturally, an adoptee who comes to consciousness is a world breaker because they're disrupting the family secrecy. Like the, they're, uh, it's an abreaction. It's a disruption to the, the fabric of a family. And that is a breaking of a world, whether that's a very small insular personal world, like you see in the film, Flirting with Disaster, where it's just families crashing into each other, or whether you're looking at like literally worlds being torn apart, uh, like in the most recent episodes of uh, Loki on Disney Plus in 2021. So if we have props and someone else's story as adoptees, what kind of representations what kind of representations do we find offensive, right? Or funny or reflective of our collective experiences. So um, the kept, those who enjoy movies about adoptees, but then don't bother to reflect deeply upon it, you know, do they have a favorite? And if so, is that problematic, right? Is the movie Orphan 2009, I believe, or 2006, uh, is that movie... Um, hate speech against adoptees, right? It, it actually is, somebody pointed to that film and said that this was the reason why that they got rid of their kid that they had adopted from Russia. So uh, it did, that film did go on to cause trauma directly in at least one adoptee's life. Um, <laughs> is anyone culpable in all that? It is just, you know, complicated enough to inspire non-adoptees to commit to a conversation about what adoptees must experience. That's all I'm looking for with this podcast, um, with this particular episode. I hope that you're able to follow all this. I, I personally have found This Is Us, the 2017 NBC drama, difficult to watch in its first few seasons, but I have come back to it in season four, uh, and I'm working through it now because I believe not only has that show helped adoptees have conversations with non-adoptees about what it is like to grow up disconnected from biological families, but I also think that this shows the writer's uh, room has grown to include adoptee voices. which is extremely important to broadening a narrative uh, so that it is resonant and it can create these communities of conversation. Well, you know, trying to find and reestablish a connection or establish a connection with someone who had been sealed away by the courts and family secrets isn't easy, but it's even harder when you don't have stories to point to that can establish common ground. Living with secrets devalues life. Um, I learned this over my life, and I try to embrace immediate disclosure, but I also try to provide frames of reference. So, 
explaining how to talk about my adoption using film or television references that can act as scaffolding around the more complicated aspects of relaying what is, for me, a deeply triggering, anxiety-inducing series of memories and contemplations. Even as I record this, I know I constantly slip in and out of disassociation. I'm grateful that I have a script that I'm following, because without it, I'd just be wandering lost through this conversation that I am having with myself. An adoptee is someone always in search. Even after they find what they think they're looking for, they just never finish searching. I remember feeling everything feeling like it hadn't quite come to rest after I found my biological father and his extended family, but rather that my search had just shifted from being an external one to an internal one. Um, you know, ultimately the films that I'll be talking about are meant to be suggestions, uh, touchstones. Hopefully, after you've listened to this podcast, you've seen some of these films. If adoption related, uh, if adoption related issues and anxieties come up. Uh, or in, in yourself or in those around you, you'll have a way to think through both my experiences I've been able to relay and hopefully others that you have um, met over the years, you can understand both yourself and them, um, however you find yourself labeled. So there are a great number of films that I could include where I feel the narratives about memory or false reality or family disturbances around long-held secrets could have been touched on. You know, I, I like movies like The Butterfly Effect in 2004, Dark City 1998, and another film, Zero Effect in 1996, are really interesting movies and deal with trauma in different ways, um, Zero Effect particularly, but, but I'm doing that in, in a, very consciously almost ignoring, you know, the impact that different strokes, a television show that started in 1978 had on, had on me and my family, um, because it was how I started to understand adoption. Punky Brewster came out in 1984. There's another sitcom that really framed how I understood how the rest of the world saw adoption, right? Like the public good. I, I think a lot about the uh, moment that Nancy Reagan came on to different strokes in the 80s um, because Nancy Reagan always seemed so similar to my adoptive mother that it, 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 it kind of always uh, stuck out in my psyche. So I've never forgotten that moment on the, on the show, nor have I f- forgotten how I see that essentializing saviorism performed, especially uh, when it's candy-coated through a sitcom veneer and you're a child watching it, it can be very reductive. So, you know, um, other reductive television shows that I can point to are like Heroes, the 2007 NBC uh, sci-fi drama, I guess, thriller drama, or Dexter, which uh, I always thought was a fascinatingly uh, disturbing portrayal of an adoptee. Um, and I don't know that it was ever meant to be a reflection on the adoptiness of Dexter, if you will. But um, when you compare Dexter 
<laughs> to heroes, to legion, um, because you know all of these things uh, keep showing you these dark adoptee as a, a destroyer, but and world ender. And then you compare that to this is us, the 2017 WC drama. Television has consistently flattened how they represent adoptees into characters, and it wasn't really for me until I saw Noah Hawley change the game with Legion that I felt like television was actually tackling these issues. Now that This Is Us has transitioned to being a more complete view of the transracial adoptee experience, um, I am increasingly fascinated with uh, where that's going, and I see other places where the adoption experience is at least complicated, if not, you know, adoptee voices being centered uh, in television series now, but that was not the case for years. And so finding good things in film and then finding the transitional moment to bring in television has been something I struggled with a lot as I was writing this, trying to figure out how much do I need to watch? How much do I need to rewatch? The ability of a television series to deepen and complicate narratives that are often only sketched out lightly in film is great, right? But uh, but at a certain point, you know, I I found myself rewatching Legion for the third time, and I and I had to stop because I I can only pull so much out of that television show. Similarly, I feel like there's only so much I can say about Mystery Inc. Um, the Scooby-Doo series where we find out that Fred's adopted. But certainly when I was watching it as an adoptee, I found it like darkly moving in a way that I don't think people who aren't adopted could have expected or anticipated. So my hope is that there might be others out there who could take this reading of films and media that I'm sort of doling out here, this notion of adoption, adoptee horror films, or um, adoptee voices being centered in culture, the bad adoptee trope throughout films, and extended to bring to light not just stories that matter about adoptees and adoption, but sort of uplift and underscore the work that adoptees themselves are doing in media. You know, someone certainly should at least try and take a stab at analyzing the 1987 Halloween episode of Punky Brewster through like a Jungian Freudian lens, perhaps. Um, that storyline is not dissimilar to the storyline of Warlock 3, The End of the Innocence, the 1999 movie that I'll get into down the road. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode. In the next episode, I'm going to talk a lot about the Ten Commandments in depth, um, the film, the 1956 film, not, not the actual passages from the Torah. And explain why um, why it is so important that <laughs> that adoption be understood as um, perhaps having a lot of elements of human trafficking baked within it and that while something might be for the greater good or seen as a societal good that doesn't necessarily translate to the lived experience of those who um, persist within those institutions and are forever labeled and stamped by them in their identities. So thanks for listening. Again, my name is Jeffrey Wysenru. I was born on 
April 15, 1974, in Twin Falls, Idaho, at Magic Valley Regional Medical Center. And then uh, I was taken from my mother, and I was given to other people uh, before the sunset. <laughs> and ever since then, I've kind of been putting all these things together. I hope you enjoyed the ride, and I look forward to our time together.